Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Brooklands once again. Uh, thank you for being here and thank you for supporting the Trust. Um, a very special welcome to our guests as well this evening. Uh, it's very good to see you. Um, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is quite a unique occasion, although someone will probably correct me. Um, I've only been here for a very small amount of time compared to others, but in my last 10 years, I can't recall the Chairman of the Trust coming along to give a talk or a presentation. So I think we need to put that right straight away and welcome our guest this evening, Sir Jerry Asher. Good, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. With a build-up like that, uh, I just hope you're not all going to be terribly disappointed. Um, I'm going to ask Bruce to come up because Bruce was my co-driver on this uh, rally. Um, and um, what was special about this rally is that uh, I think it was probably one of the first of its kind. Um, there had been a growing historic rally movement, and indeed, uh, Graham Rankin, who is here uh, tonight, did uh, the route from London to Peking a few years earlier. Um, but this was right at the beginning of some of the really tough pre-war historic rallying that many of us are now coming to accept. But I think the difference about this one, and I, I've done this rally with Bruce in 1997 over the Himalayas, and then I did it again in 2007 in a Model A Ford uh, through the Gobi Desert and Mongolia and Siberia. Now, just in those 10 years, the difference in roads, in communication, was transformed. And if you now jump from 2007, to 2016, nine years, not ten. It's transformed again. And no more are there great tracts of total lack of roads. There are now many more highways, many other cars. In 1997, people were still dressed in their Mao uniform. And people looked at you quizzically because they weren't used to cars at all. And so the 1997 rally for me, it was particularly special because it was still in its infancy and still the ground that we covered was in many ways total virgin territory, and that has changed. I'm just going to see if I've got the uh, little bits and pieces. Um, one problem about being chairman of the museum is that technology has great fun in getting the better of you when there's an audience. <laughs> And Bruce and I ran through this at what, quarter to, quarter to six this evening? Yes. Went through it all, absolutely perfect. Came along here at half past six, and it wasn't until quarter to seven that we managed to get the, the technology to work. Now, I've just digitalized all these slides because I was worried that old-fashioned technology in the modern era may not always work. And this just shows you maybe earlier technology is sometimes better. So. What we are going to be talking about is a rally that started in 
Peking, now known, of course, as Beijing. This was the celebration of the first motor race ever over long distances. And Le Matin, in 1907, challenged the motoring fraternity to race from Peking to Paris. It was going to be from Paris to Peking, but they got the date and the timing wrong for the seasons, so it had to be from Peking to Paris. They had no idea whether one car would turn up or a hundred cars would turn up. And the race was to see who could drive the fastest. And in those days, five cars turned up. Was it five or four? I think it was five. It was five. And they set off. Here we see Prince Borghese in his 1907 Italic. And he actually won the race. And as you can see, they're, they're carrying with them uh, things to great chunks of timber to get over ravines and cross bridges, well, no bridges, of course. And he had to not only pull the car apart to get across the ravines, they had to drive endlessly along railway tracks. Can you imagine? You don't need sleeping policemen when you've got all the railways. <laughs> And he managed to get to Paris in, I think it was, it 56 days? Graham, where have you? I was at 54. 54 days. And he got there with one wheel, the offside front, not getting a puncture. All the other punctures. And our challenge was to beat him and get to Paris with no punctures. Uh, as you'll see in a minute, that challenge lasts five minutes. <laughs> so that, that's the four of them got to Paris. Prince Borghese got there a good ten days before anybody else. And this was despite the fact that when he got to Moscow, he was told that there was a wild party going on in St. Petersburg, uh, plenty of women and wine and so on. And so he got back into his car, made a quick diversion up to St. Petersburg, um, uh, parted the night away, got back in his car, and then continued on the rally. And he still loved, he still won by 10 minutes. Well, we were not quite going to emulate that side of the story. Uh, we were just going to stick to the route. Um, but that, that was what it was all about. And um, it was a great thing in its time, and um, you can see the the rough route that he took, uh, straight up through the Gobi Desert, uh, through outer Mongolia. Outer Mongolia is in fact inner Mongolia, and inner Mongolia is in fact outer Mongolia, if you can work that out. And then he went up into Siberia, very much the route that the current Peking Palace Rally takes. But Philip Young, in his wisdom, decided that that would be too easy for the 1997 rally, so he wanted to do something special. So he thought he'd take us over the Himalayas. And indeed, we went over the Himalayas, and quite a bit of our talk tonight is going to be uh, as we go over the Himalayas. And of the five cars that started, as I said, four finished. The fifth one was a three-wheel cycle car. <laughs> totally overloaded. And if you ask Bruce how you prepare for a rally, he will tell you, travel as light as you can. 
They filled up the back of their cycle car with mum champagne. <laughs> they were found with the champagne bottles empty, walking deliriously in the Gobi Desert by nomads, rescued them, and they survived. But of course, they never got to Paris. But my goodness me, they had a good party on the show. <laughs> so, here we start, and our car is a 1932 Aston Martin New International. Bruce, do you want to just say a couple of words about the car and what we did to it? Uh, well, yes, it's a 1932 New International Aston Martin. And preparation-wise, we didn't really alter it much from the original specification. It had a full armor tray. Uh, we used an alternator for the electricity and doubled up on the filtration pumps and that sort of thing. Um, we completely rebuilt the car. But really, that was it. It went as a 1932 car, just with a few modifications. It wasn't, uh, there was no great technology bringing to it at all. Um, and there it is outside, still going strong. And we've, we've not done anything to it other than we put in a new engine block. It's got a new engine block now. Because it, went, it went on an old engine block and it went on magnetos as well, which caused some entertainment. But we'll come to that. We'll we'll come to that. <laughs> so the car was pretty well standard. Um, the one thing, as I said earlier, is that you've got to travel light in these roads. What is an absolute killer is weight. And you'll hear great stories of daring do, of half-charge braking, of this packing up and so on, so forth. It always comes back at the end of the day to one of two things, either bad driving or too much weight. And the secret is to go light. And Philip Young gave us a lecture, was it down at Gormwood, just before we went up into the Himalayas? Just before going up into the Himalayas. <coughs> there were so many cars that weren't going to get much further that they were, well, I was just saying, there was a DB6 Aston Martin where the, the owner gave away the back axle to a local Chinese because he carried a complete spare back axle. So we got rid of our second pair of underpants. <laughs> <laughs> The Americans were getting rid of their high-lift jacks, yeah. their power showers. Do you know that two cars actually had power showers to got rid of, we, everyone had to get, and all the locals, of course, were having an absolute field day, just taking all this stuff, but we had to get the cars to be as light as possible. We, Bruce and I, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about doing a rally like this is you can laugh about it afterwards. But I was getting obsessed with weight. And I was going to get rid of one of our two spare wheels. No, we had, we yes, had two spare wheels, but we, we sent one back. We, we had two spare wheels. And um, I decided that we would get rid of one of the wheels, keep the tyres, but get rid of the wheels. And uh, Bruce didn't quite agree with that. Oh, yes, I did. Well, not, not at the time. And I got up early in the morning to get this, put this wheel into the back of um, um, uh, Lord Montague's car that had packed up and was being towed off to wherever it was going. And off went to our spare wheel, so at least we managed to reclaim that a few months later. But this is the sort of thing, and afterwards we totally agreed, this is the thing you should do. Just get the car to be as absolutely light as possible. Um, now, sadly, we hadn't gone five minutes from the port when we had our first puncture. 
Now, how many tube punctures do you think we had all together? The tires were fine. Well, I think the first the tires were fine. The, the, the yeah, first the puncture we picked up was, was just a puncture in the road. You know, it's nothing. But, but in the cold weather, the tires were fine. But as soon as it started getting hot as Jerry will tell you, basically the, the outer chafed the inner tube. And at one point we were having a, a puncture a day. Every day at three o'clock in the afternoon, we would hear a bang. <laughs> one day it would be a bang from the upside, and the next day it would be a bang from the inside. And we would just, as day followed day, as we were going through the hot weathers of Iran, have a blowout, and it took us 20 minutes to change a tire, strip out the inner tube, put a new one in. When we're in the heat of Iran, when it's 50 degrees centigrade, and we got in in the evenings, we actually didn't even have the strength to do it no. sometimes. We were just so exhausted. So, and that gets quite debilitating. Uh, and it was made worse by the fact that uh, we had this big, clumsy um, telephone, satellite telephone. Because in those days, there weren't the little telephones that one has nowadays. The satellite ones were, you know, you had to point, point the aerial to get a reception. Well, you can't see them with satellites. So how do you, you know, there's a, and there was no aerial indicator on the thing. So it's all touch and go. And actually, the telephone packed up in the middle of Iran once I'd given the order for inner tubes. And um, I had told him where we wanted them sent. But I didn't have a chance to tell him who I was or what my MasterCard number was. And as a result, those towers never arrived. And we ended up with the last day in Iran. We were down to two spare tubes, two spare tubes, and the weather changed. And after that, we had no punctures. But goodness me, that was that stressful. So that's the story about punctures. Now, the only other problem is into a little Aston, and you'll see it out there. How do you fit all your stuff in? Now, this is all Bruce's stuff, I'll tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, would you believe that we got all of that into the back of the Aston? Apart from our clothes, we've got tents, wait, a tent, we've got sleeping bags, um, we've got cooking equipment, you know, you, you've just got to be prepared. So at the end of the day, what we had for our clothes was about like that. And that was it. That was about it. Yep. Yep. So you must remember, we were going through deserts on the one hand and freezing cold conditions on the other. So we had to have a complete cross-section of everything. Bruce had a change of mind about Prague pretty early on in the you know, We had to decide whether we had experience or, or, or youth, and we decided for experience. This is just to show you that we actually did start in China. Um, you see a lot of broken down lorries, and the first thing that you see with them are their tires, and there's no treadmill. They get their tires from India when the Indians are finished with them. They then pass them on to the Chinese. Now, of course, it's all changed in 20 years, but this was the state 20 years ago. This is a typical road 20 years ago in China. This is our second day. And farm vehicles, uh, you'll notice the irrigation channels on the side of the road. 
and that is the only traffic there is. Reasonable time. This village was totally destroyed by an earthquake, and this was our second night's stop. And the Chinese lanterns, cycles, everyone's whistles, they don't see, not only do they not see old cars, but they don't see private cars. Because at that time, there were no private cars. There was just public transport in vans and uh, farm utility vehicles and the odd official car. But that's all there was in those days. I'll just show you the local shop, the tobacco shop, and uh, everything that you could want. You know, quite a selection of stuff. This is a lovely little town. Now, this was the first five-star hotel that we stayed in. <laughs> now, I had to take issue with Bruce because he used the loo before me. <laughs> you can see the water dripping down here. Can you see the water dripping down, those droplets of water? When you flushed it, those drops of water turned into almost a farmer's hose spray coming straight to your trousers. So you came out soaking wet from the waist downwards. So um, this is one of the sort of pri private laughs that we have between us. Um, you did think it was very good. I did. You thought it was very good. Um, I just have to very quickly tell you about this hotel. At one o'clock in the morning, there was a hammering on the door. And it was terrifying. We were under the bed by then. Oh, was yeah. It was terrifying. Tremendous banging on the door. And we just, just did nothing. Just froze. And then a few minutes later, it went away, and there was banging on the next door. And it wasn't just tapping. It was real hammering. And then went on to the next door. And I said to the uh, tourist uh, interpreter, what was all that banging at one o'clock in the morning? He said, oh, don't worry, it's just the local prostitutes talking for business. <laughs> <laughs> and just to give you an example of how things changed in 10 years, when I did the thing the second time, uh, you didn't have hammering on the door. Somebody put a little note underneath the door, and it just said, sexy, with a phone number to ring. <laughs> so that's the way things changed in 10 years' time. That's the end of our first five-star hotel. <coughs> just very quickly again, back to the vegetation. Just to show you uh, the irrigation. Look at all the salt that has come up through all the, the irrigation. Of course, that is, doesn't do the land any good. Then you've got a bit of agriculture. Then you've got some sheep. Then you've got some maize growing. Look how flat it is and not a cloud in the sky. That is a typical Chinese landscape. <coughs> and then the children. I want you just to look at this because you'll see children odd times during this talk. And what is interesting is, the world over, the children are exactly the same. They're all excited to see you, they're all full of uh, interest. There'll be one or two who'll be a little quizzical, and there will be one or two who'll be a little nervous. And here he is carrying a set square, offering that lesson. But they'll all be delighted. And everywhere we went, from China right up through to the furthest part of Turkey, the children are the same. And what I want to know is what changes those children into some of them being nice and the others being the tyrants that we are having to put up with all over the place. And it's just interesting to think how in this world we all start off exactly the same, with the same mannerisms, the same approaches, and look how we change. So I was at KPMG in those days, and there was another KPMG car, uh, the little Series 1 Land Rover, 
Uh, he was a little more competitive than us. Our only wish was to finish this round. Uh, we were raising money for two characters, Motability and Macmillan Nurses. And when the fundraising director of Motability ran up to Philip Young to find out details about the rally, he said, which car are you supporting? And they said, the 1932 Aston Martin. And he said to them in typical Philip Young fashion, oh, I wouldn't bother with them if I were you. We're not expecting to see them at the start, let alone at the finish. <laughs> and, you know, this so incensed us, we had this driving ambition to finish this rally, taking it very carefully. <coughs> and um, uh, these people said that they'd get there ahead of us and they, we would only manage it if they took all our stuff for us. So we did actually give them our spare half shot to go in. Half shot, yes. yeah. a couple of <coughs> Sadly, they ended up down a ravine in India. And I mean, how they escaped from it, we'll come to that shortly, uh, but they did, and then we had to retrieve our half shot. Um, <laughs> but we managed. Uh, lovely kids everywhere, so excited, so interested. This is a typical Chinese village. Now, you won't see anything like this anymore, because they've all gone. You know, they'll now be roads, but in those days, you, there was no point in having roads through the village because you didn't have cars. The most you'd have would be a little farm, three-wheeler like that, a little tuk-tuk. And so everything was geared around, around that. And so this is a typical village with an icebox. And wherever you go, the moment we stopped in China, within, what, a minute there'd be a policeman? That was just phenomenal. One place, a much bigger place we stopped at, and we went into the shop to get some fruit. And before we could even come out, two policemen came in. And they really ran this place as a police, literally as a police state. It was terrifying. And they took us along one road that was near their nuclear establishments. And there was a policeman about every 30 yards. That was the new motorway. Yes. As it was about 200 miles. Yes. No cars were on it. No cars were on it, but there was a policeman every... Every few yards. For miles and miles and miles. They did not want you to deviate. And of course, that's all changed now. Now you can drive wherever you want. The maps were a load of rubbish. You cannot rely on their maps. And I'm sure they're done to confuse foreigners. Because uh, the only way we knew we were on the right route was if the sun was in our eyes in the evening. The sun was in our eyes, i.e. we were going west, we knew we were different. Well, you couldn't get lost because they immediately put you back on the route. So yes. you couldn't get back at all. Yeah. Notice uh, cans of tea. Everybody, but everyone in China, has their little can of tea that they take with them every day, wherever they go. So what do you do when you overtake a haystack? <laughs> and then you find what's in the front. Now, is the driver in there? I can't, no, he's not sitting there at the moment. But even if he was sitting in there, you wouldn't be able to see him. Because the haystack is right over the front of the, that's the sort of. This is just coming into Lanzhou. People actually live in the mountains. In the wet weather, they live in here. And in the dry weather in the summer, they come out and live in near the fields with all their animals. And this was just, uh, at the end of the monsoon season, and um, they were they were still living in the caves, and you can see the tractor here, and, and so on and so forth. Typical road workers, 
sunshades on, always very happy. And a beggar. The beggars are no different than the beggars in the UK, except probably a little smarter dress and a bit of better looked after. This is the town of Lanzhou, about twice the size of Kingston on Thames, would you say? Yes. Maybe three times the size. And as you can see, there's very industrial, yes indeed. And um, the only thing that was different from an English town was at nine o'clock in the morning, we were there on a Monday morning, a lorry came past with nine people, all dressed in white, bright white shrouds. And um, I, uh, I asked uh, the, uh, the interpreter, you know, you know, what are these nine people doing in the back of the lorry? And he said, oh, they're just being paraded around the town they're being taken off to be hanged. And I said, well, that's charming. And he said, yes, uh, we hang them in threes. And of course, because it's a weekend, there's nine of them. And so they're going to be hanging nine later on. And I said, well, you know, what, what have they done? What's the typical crime? He said, well, most people are hung for economic crimes, fraud or money, money associated crimes. That is the biggest crime. And I said, you know, life is very cheap there. And an example to everybody else, just parade them around in the lorry before they're hung, and they're hung in the public square. Rather than that, Lanzo is like Kingston or Thames. I don't think they do a hanging in Kingston or Thames. Um, again, the lorry driver, like English lorry drivers, taking it easy from time to time. Uh, the only difference, again, is the can of tea, the jar of tea. And the mannequins. Look, look at there, they've got Western mannequins. And it's just extraordinary. Where would they have come from? How did they end up being there? Not just this one, but all those there, all these here. And even at this time, when there was no communication, there was no internet, there was no television, they're still basing their passion on the West. Yet these people had no access to the West. And that, to this day, confused them. University, we had a bit of uh, one or two bits made for the car here, didn't we? Uh, the spring tanks were breaking mm -hmm. and they made them at the university and made it a And um, we went to Lanzau University. Lanzau University, and all of you, if you want to know why they've got a table tennis, this is the reason. <laughs> but other than that, it's very similar to, you know, UK university accommodation. Look at all the clothes hanging out of the windows, and so on and so forth. And say a bit about uh, the fire engine. Uh, let's see. Said it was 1907. It's a LaFrance um, driven by a character who called himself Herman Gerald. And he had no real weather protection. I think he totally underestimated how uh, cold it was going to be. How far did he get? Got as far as. Um, the, the beginning of the Himalayas. The beginning of the Himalayas, and uh, well, it had to be flown home basically with pneumonia. They'd actually got rid of their their equipment, they got rid of their cold weather equipment when we had our big shakeout, which is the stupidest thing on earth. So this is the first time we found the deal, wasn't it? Yes. So now we're getting into the cold weather, we just changed the um, fuel jets here, hadn't well, we? Well, no, that was because of the altitude. Mm. It, it was really getting very high here, and uh, everybody recommended that it should change to a, a richer medium, whether we actually needed to. Uh, the next five-star hotel we stayed at. Now, they would given us this hotel on purpose because from then on, it was camping for about the next five nights. 
And so they felt that they gave us a really grotty hotel we'd look forward to and enjoy the camping, which I did because I enjoyed camping. Bruce, you didn't really enjoy camping, did you? I prefer hotels, even as bad as I am. Yeah. <laughs> and then we went to the Himalayas. And it was absolutely stunning, and it was beautiful. Just look at the ocean. Yes, it was cold. Um, you'd always see how beautiful it was as the snow. You came slowly down the snow line, and then it got to be quite barren. You know, it's a many very large plateaus and um, very barren landscape, but absolutely beautiful. And that's absolutely serene in its quietness. And this just shows you how small we were in comparison to the world around us. When you see the size of these mountains, it is just stunning. And this is one of the few good roads that we have. It's almost like uh, icing on a cake to be Crystal right up. clear air. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Very, very bright. That's why the photographs don't have so well. Very, very clear. And it's not something that you experience in the Alps because, you know, you don't have these big plains that go on for miles, just the mountains all around you. It's uh, quite extraordinary. And every pass you'd have plenty of flags flying uh, in, in true uh, Buddhist, Buddhist style. And then the road workers. And they don't have things like um, steam rollers to roll the road. They just allow the tractor to do it. And they expected us to drive over this and help flatten the road. And this is typically what happens. The monsoon has damaged all the road. These are big, goes down about two feet every time. And so they're making a temporary road around here while they rebuild all this road. And the lorry had got caught, couldn't get up here, so you then had to go freshly around there. And this was all quite a challenge. And um, we would typically be running around two to three hours behind the last car. We were always, always here in Charlie. The sweeper who's supposed to sweep behind the last car would pass us around 11 o'clock. <laughs> and they said, Jerry, uh, you seem to be doing okay, we'll see you tonight. And then the sweeper overtook us, and that's the last we saw of the sweeper. We all what had... Was the, what was the altitude here? This was about, oh, we're about 15, wasn't it? This is about 15,000 feet, so we're, we're running at uh, just below 5,000 meters. <coughs> we were known every... every sorry, yeah. every single car was about 20% down. We, we were lucky. Being a small engine, we could start our cars, but the big benders had problems because they just couldn't get enough oxygen in to get the, get the car started in the morning. Um, we all had nicknames. We never knew our nickname. Our nickname was uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. <laughs> when you see a road worker with his wife and kid, you know they're there for a long time. We didn't realize that at the time, but we soon did. And that night was a really cold night, and you can see the frost all around. And a number of the Americans hadn't put any antifreeze in their cars. So around 12 o'clock midnight, the first engine would start up. But they didn't all start their engines up at the same time. They'd be in, in uh, consecutively. So there was virtually not a moment of quiet throughout the whole night. 
engines all around them, about uh, 40 odd cars would be starting up one after the other uh, just to warm them up. We had to get up very early the following morning because we're having problems. We didn't know what the problem was at that time uh, of misfiring. And we thought it was the carburetor, so Bruce decided that uh, we'd get up at 5, 5, 5.30 in the morning and just go all the way through the fuel systems. We had to get the car sorted to be able to start at 8.30. It's only <coughs> if you start at your allotted time do you get your silver medal. And we were determined to win the silver medal. Metal. And you can see here how cold it is, the cross, and that's the warm bit where the engine has been running. And it was so cold that your fingers would stick to the metal. It was, uh, it was quite uncanny. And that was in the daytime, how beautiful it was again. Wide roads. And this gives you an idea of the roads. No tarmac at all, just, just gravel everywhere. And this terrible stuff called washboard caused by the rain. So it's just like a washboard, and there are only two ways of going along washboard, either slowly and it ripped you to pieces, or fast and you sort of get into a tune. We rather will go slowly, which I'm sure was the right thing to do. And here is again more problems on the roads, and here they are redoing the road, in the meantime you've got to come all around here through all this mud, and you can see the snow on the vehicle, and the, the the skill here, the real driver's skill to get through this, was to make sure you're driving the car, because the co-driver had to get up and push. Guess who was pushing? No, oh, do you remember? You had to catch me up once. <coughs> well, we, we arrived at something like this, and I said, "Look, I'll give the car a push. When it gets going, you just keep going. Don't stop. Just carry on until it gets." I always do as I'm told, by the way. Yeah. And I then ran off. When you realise how the altitude affects you, because I was absolutely knackered. knackered. Yes, <laughs> so, this is no fun as you can see, but you've just got to do it. You've just got to get through this mud, and you know, we're in sub zero temperatures at this stage, and you can just see how terrible it is. And if you meet these lorries, there's nothing you can do but just give way to them. So we're now at the highest peak, which was about 17,500 feet. So, you know, this is a serious height. Now look at my smart trousers there. Well, it's actually the altitude record for an astronaut. <laughs> yes. And now look at my smart trousers. Uh, Joyce and I had been, uh, in my work I had to go to New Zealand every couple of years, and we met at a dinner party this young chap who was starting up a company called Icebreaker, and they were just starting, and he said, will you test some of our gear? And he gave us two complete icebreaker suits of long johns to wear, and he said, will you send back a photograph? And I promise you, from 1998 until only a few years ago, in their brochure of their, of their equipment, you will see this photograph. <laughs> in my long johns. And uh, Icebreaker now is probably the premier company providing high altitude clothing. Uh, and I think they take pretty well all the merino wool produced in New Zealand. And they're jolly good, I can assure you. And even with my trousers down around my ankles, I still like them. But uh, that was, as Bruce said, at about 17,500 feet. And coming to the you know, we decided to go into one of the villages, so we stopped the car, and we saw the village over there, 
and we're going to walk over it. Before we could go into the village, all the villagers came out, and you can see them all here. And this little chap in the front, he had just been given a new bicycle. And so um, we had some pens that we gave out when we saw people like this. And there was this massive rubber scrum for these pens. And so his bicycle fell to the ground. He ended up on the bicycle. I ended up on him. And then about 10 or 15 other people ended up on top of us. And the smell was something. <laughs> Here they all are, um, having, having fun all from the local village. Look at the headgear. I found that interesting because it's very similar to the headgear that you see in South America. But how do they get from South America to here? How is it that it is similar? We're now getting to the really beautiful part of the Himalaya. You can see the sheep over there. And the local people, he wasn't keen on having his photo taken. They're always busying themselves. And here he is busying it, just doing a little bit of um, spinning. This, to me, is probably one of the most memorable scenes for me of the whole rally. And I can still remember it today, as it was 20, almost 20 years ago. We'd stopped the car so I could photograph it. And you will see this herdsman here herding his cattle through the water. And as he's herding them through the water, he's singing some local song. And so you have this beautiful scenery of the mountains and the snow, the flat grassy plain, and the farmer uh, singing away as his cows go through. And just over there is one of the black-neck cranes with its reflection in the water. It was a very, very special and magical moment. And everybody would have their own magical moments. Now this is something very, very different. This man is a very strict Buddhist, and he is on a pilgrimage to Lhasa. Lhasa was still, what, two, three hundred miles away? Two hundred miles away. Two hundred miles away. Just imagine how long it was going to take him. Every few steps he took, he would prostrate himself on the ground, and then he would carry on, walk another few steps, prostrate himself, and here was a monk who was carrying all his worldly possessions. And apparently, at least once in your lifetime, you will take on a journey like this. It is just quite, uh, quite fascinating to understand the, uh, the religious fervor, the torment that goes on with these people and how they have to uh, absolve themselves of all the spirits and the demons. And this is how they do it. But it was quite a humbling sight. More beautiful scenery. And then we're down into Lhasa. And in Lhasa, the, the famous temple and big street markets outside, they're selling incense. And you know, this is, you can see all the incense here being sold. And then into the temple, and we spun every single one of those prayer wheels. And this is on the Patola Palace. This is how you boil a kettle. <coughs> you have a little stand, the sun shines on there, and it heats the bottom of the kettle, and lo and behold, you have your cup of tea. And then as we leave Lhasa, a beautiful painted Buddha. And back into the mountains, we have another three days before we come 
down into Nepal over Friendship Bridge, and again, lovely smiling faces. I mean, these people could well have been sisters. They looked very similar. Uh, they seemed to have very similar bracelets as well. And the little kids didn't seem to be too happy to say. And then the great Yangtze River, and we're reminded of stories of people like Yon Husband, who, uh, who invaded Tibet back in the early 1900s. And, um, you know, the, the British conqueror got everywhere. And they, they were supposed to be on a peace mission, but there was no peace there at all. So, the road was beautiful as it wound around the mountain. I took this photograph to just show you one of the risks of rallying. We needed to stop for a pee. And whenever you stop for a pee, you've got to put an OK sign on the back of your car so that others don't stop. So the back page of your route map has an OK page on it. So um, you can see Bruce is just doing up his trousers and off we go <laughs> with the map on the back. And then it's what? Ten miles later? Ten miles later, we had to go back. We had to go back. Ten miles is about half an hour. And so we wasted an hour retracing our map. So always, if you're going on a rally, make sure your OK board <coughs> is not the last page of the map. Because as eggs are eggs, something will happen. There's a nomad here uh, at this night stop of ours. And look how small they are. They're almost like pigments. And this is how we fill up with fuel. Um, uh, at these stops. But the day before we got into Lhasa, we were too late arriving at camp to get fuel. And we had to do the trip into Lhasa with just the rem remnants of fuel in our tank. And that was two days of rallying. Two days of rallying on one load of fuel. And we, would you say we had a cup and a half of petrol when we got into Lhasa? Yeah, I can tell you it's extremely stressful. And then our last day in the Himalayas, and um, the Model A board of Prince Idris Shah and the Rolls, the Pink Rose Royce of John Stardard, they waited for us so that we could do a photo shoot of the last day in the Himalayas. And that evening, <coughs> in camp, they saw Everest. Sadly, we were running four hours late, and when we got to Everest, it was done. And that's always a great, great sadness to me. The one thing I'd always wanted to see as a, an ex-mountaineer was Everest. And I'd never seen it, and still to this day, I've only ever seen it from an aeroplane. But uh, this would have been our opportunity. But for us, it was never to happen. Some <coughs> great little kids around. And as we come down from Tibet, we look at the fields, and everybody, but everybody, in true Buddhist style, all the families are doing something, working on the field. The kids will be playing, but husbands and wives and relations all be working on their little patches of land. And this was very different from India and Pakistan, where it always seems to be the women who are working on the fields. So our last day and our last night's accommodation, we were told we could camp, but you weren't very keen on camping. So we stayed at the Choksan Hilton. The Choksan Hilton was seemed to be believed. As we arrived, the little piglets came down from the front reception. <laughs> when you went in, there was no light at all. All the lights had failed. 
and the main sewer ran down the middle of the corridor, <laughs> and half the flagstones were missing. So you had to negotiate that. And when we got to our bedroom, the number of creepy crawlers in that room was just horrific. Absolutely. So this was the preparation for the next day, which was the road to hell. And it literally was the road to hell. Thousands of meters dropped, well, that's exaggerating, probably a thousand meters dropped, and a narrow road with no protection, landslides going on all the time. And it was only four years, five years later, when I was sitting chatting to Philip Young, he said he sent us out from Lhasa along this road. At that time, that road was not open. They were working on it night and day to open it. Cars hadn't been along there for how many years? The about cars hadn't been there for about 30 years, yes. which is what you're coming to at the moment. But, um, no private cars have been down that road for, for years. And he had no idea whether they'd get it clear or not. And if they hadn't got it clear, he did not know what he was going to do with us because there was no fuel supplies to take us back to Lhasa. It was a really no plan B. So it was a very stressful time for everyone. And here is the Mark uh, 7 Jaguar, a very strong, solid car. Uh, and you can see the, the quality of the roads there. This marvelous Rolls-Royce Silver Ray, they had no problems with it at all. He was doing it with his wife and his mechanic back home said, you are not to touch anything. And he did not touch anything, and nothing went wrong, did it? He carried no space. No space in that car whatsoever. <laughs> Volvos were very good cars in the trains, very good cars. So we had the massive waterfall. So everybody put up their roofs, except for the Benton boys. Jonathan Turner and Adam Hartley, they were the life and soul of the party. If ever you're on a rally with Jonathan Turner and Adam Hartley, you will have fun. They always had fun. So they weren't going to put their hood up because they said, if they drive fast enough, they won't get wet. <laughs> They did get wet. If you take a can or a bucket of water and throw it down, it doesn't matter what speed you go through, you're going to get wet, which they then realize, and their car got full of water. Um, here's our little asset coming. You can see how frail it is compared to the other cars. I decided to get out here and be the photographer. I thought it was a lot safer than doing in the car. And as you can see, this is where the road ends and a thousand foot ravine begins. And leading down to this village, well, a number of cars just failed on that one stretch. Half shafts went. Um, it was death between China and Nepal, yes, so there were a lot of failures because the road was just that bad, which was remarkable. But uh, we kept going. And so we get to the last village before we get to Friendship Bridge. At the end of the village, the Chinese army had set up a post, a command post, where they were charging us all a nine US dollar non-inspection fee. In other words, if you did not want your car inspected, you had to pay nine dollars. If you wanted it inspected, you may be there for a day or so. Now the real problem for us was a road worker had been killed three days before. Sorry, been injured three days before and had been taken off to the local hospital, hit by one of the cars. And um, our medic went to see him 
and he just had a broken rib and I think a broken arm. And the doctor came back and said, the only way you could tell this was a hospital by the words hospital on the top. And there's no care or anything inside. And he said, this man will probably die. We had to have this rally out of China before he dies. Otherwise, all the cars could be impounded and all of us could have been put in prison. And he wasn't joking. And this was with us for the next three days until we got out of China. And in fact, the day after he died, he was there. And so into Nepal, where it was all quite different and all very exciting, and tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, reception from everyone. And here we are coming up to Friendship Bridge. Just very quickly tell you that sometimes things get strained between the driver and the co-driver. And um, there are these two American college lads, or they've known each other since college. And one, the co-driver was a brilliant photographer, and he loved taking photographs. And the driver was a very competitive fellow. And he, they got to Friendship Bridge, and the driver was convinced that there was a place where we had to get our rally box stamped. Um, and so he said to his co-driver, get, get, get the road book out and get it stamped. And he couldn't find the road book. And the driver threw his toys out of the fence. If you took as good care of the road book as you do of your cameras, we wouldn't get into this mess. And, um, and the co-driver said, well, look, you know, if you don't want me to co-drive for you, I'll, I'll get out. And he said, yes, get out. And so he threw his uh, co-driver out on Friendship Bridge. There was actually no checkpoint at all. And a chap drove off. And the fellow started walking. And we overtook him. We didn't realize he was the rally member because we just saw him from the back and saw this chap walking. And he was picked up an hour or two later by the sweeper van and uh, collected and taken down to, to the camp. And this is the sort of thing that happened. A number of the crews have never talked to each other after the end of that family. <laughs> 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 it's true, Surtees and. Never spoken since. <laughs> so you, you find that a bit strange, but this is the sort of tension. But Bruce and I, we're good foils for each other. I remember one morning, Bruce always takes the early morning start, because I'm not a good morning person. And it's about, it's an early start that morning. We're driving down, and there's a big puddle at the bottom of this road. I said to Bruce, you're going too fast here, you're going too fast. I bet you there's a big hole in this. And Bruce said, don't worry, I've got it. I've got it. Went into there. And it was such a big pothole, I felt every vertebrae in my back go clip as we hit. And I said to Bruce, for goodness sake, I try more slowly through these things. Otherwise, we're going to break our, break our springs and crack the chassis of this car, and that's the end of our life. And as quick as a flash, Bruce said to me, Jerry, if we break our springs or crack the chassis of this car, it's not because of the way I've been driving it for the last 200 yards, it's the way you've been driving it for the last 200 miles. <laughs> So that was the end of the discussion, and off we went to the next one. And then we stopped in Kathmandu. Uh, you could get everything from tide to fresh fish in Kathmandu. And then we had a day or two to really petal the cars after all the time over the Himalayas. Um, we had been going half the rally that had covered a third of the distance. So in the other half of the time, we had to cover two thirds of the distance just to give you some idea of the speed that we now have to move at. Oh, this is just to show you where you bring the dying people, and then once they've died, they're then uh, put on funeral piles, and you've got all these uh, 
youngsters in the river picking out the gold from the tea. <laughs> and then the Buddhist temple. You've got Buddhism in here, Hinduism lives side by side. And so now we're out through the Himalayas, we're going through Nepal, into India, quick dog leg, through to Delhi, and then Pakistan, uh, and then through Baluchistan and into Iran. Nepal isn't just a narrow country, it's really quite beautiful. And the people again, the children, as I said earlier, they're always lovely. Look at the flowers they've got for us. You lots of rivers to cross, and all the rivers, this isn't a particularly big one, but they all have these posts. Would you believe somebody went the wrong side of the posts? <laughs> the little VW were always told with a beetle, you've got to have your doors open to get water in, otherwise you'll float downstream. He kept his door shut, so he floated downstream. <laughs> and here's Bruce driving through, extremely confident. There were about 10 rivers to cross like that in one day. And again, we had no boats to <coughs> I'll never forget this because, as Bruce said, for 20 minutes you have literally no brakes. And you're driving at 20 odd miles an hour and you've got all these people on the other side and they're crowding into the car. And of course they didn't realise it would not, we would not be able to stop. I mean, we literally had no control over the car whatsoever. Oh, and gives. And we get more children, look at how quizzical that young lad is and how excited the other side. Wonderful. Uh, in the lectures that we did after this rally, we raised enough money to help a project to put sanitation into all the houses on either side of the East-West Highway to net power damage. If you're a roofer, there's plenty of work to do that. But look how colourful the girls' dresses are and the saris. Uh, no roads at all in this area, and we're literally driving along riverbeds. I think riverbeds are about the worst thing you can possibly drive across because it is just big boulders, and the boulders aren't there other than they're being put there by the water. So there is, you literally have no control over the steering. You can see I'm just sort of trying to grip the steering wheel there, but at the end of the day, you've just got to let it go wherever it wants. And you, how many miles was that section? A good five, seven miles? Easily, yeah. yeah. So if you can imagine driving around along a river bed of boulders like that for about seven miles, debilitating. Uh, we'd stopped here with our satellite phone because our friends in the Land Rover Series 1 end up down a ravine because the driver system doing the whole of the driving. We would share two hours on, two hours off, two hours on. No matter how well the driving was going, we would always share the driving. He did it all. Nighttime driving, first day of nighttime driving, going up the side of a mountain, Lorry comes in the other direction, suddenly puts on his headlights. What do you do? Pull over to the side of the road. They're glaring at you. He was already at the side of the road before he pulled over, straight down the ravine. He landed about 30 feet down, almost vertical ravine. And to this day, the doctors don't know actually how he and his co driver scrambled back up, but they did. And so we're ringing the British Embassy in India to tell them that uh, two people will be passing through. We believe they're injured. They're saying they're not injured, but we're suggesting that they be checked out before they <coughs> put on the road. 
And we met this fellow here with a gun, and he was telling us how he'd shot 48 tigers in his life, all with that gun. And when we dropped him at our Delhi office the next day, I was rather surprised to see on the front page of the Hindustani Times, vintage wheels, and the other guy had taken that photograph of me on the satellite telephone trying to get through to our embassy with Bruce looking on saying, get on with it, we're running the legs as it is. Well, I think the point was, Jerry, that was a tiger reserve and we were told not to stop. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's, that's why the chap had shot 49 tigers with that one gun. <laughs> oh, uh, and you get lorries on their side in India, but as I said, the only difference is they still have a bit of tread on their wheels. And we saw now. And then as we queue up to get into Pakistan, getting seats, uh, and just interested to see all the headdress, the young ones particularly. This is a fascinating one. In Pakistan, the buses, everything's on the bus. People are inside, the luggage on the top, and the animals on the top. And here they are waiting to put these animals on the top. And to this day, I don't know how they got the animals on top, and even more so, how did the animals stay on top? I'll give you to think about that. The local butchers. I won't try and tell you what the smell is like when it's 40 odd degrees outside. <coughs> that evening, we left the rally. It was going too fast, and we weren't prepared to drive at night. And we stopped at the local police station and we spent a bit of time with the local criminals. And uh, that evening, although we didn't know it then, the Powell and Sun team in the um, little VW Beetle that had gone swimming down the river, they'd had a head-on collision with a bus, and both of them were killed out front. And uh, just identified the sense that we had in leaving the rally. It was a very, very serious part of the rally. It was so tough. Mm. Um, just back to full memory, how dangerous it was. And uh, so the next day we went up to Quetta, which was the previous night stop. We got there at lunchtime. And of course, we were met by a whole lot of officials, and they just wanted us to move on. We said we're going to aim for the border with Iran, Sahadan, that evening. And they said, No, you won't. You will not get there. You will stay at a place called Noshki, and you will go and stay with the district commissioner. And I said, well, how will we find the district commissioner in Nushkin? And he pointed to the carpet in the entrance of the hotel and said, uh, Nushkin's only a small place, and uh, you'll have no difficulty in finding the district commissioner. So off we go down to towards Nushki, which is off the main road, and we get there just about dusk, yeah. and Nushki is about twice the size of Kingston-on-Thames. Uh, how do you find the mayor of Kingston-on-Thames when you don't speak the language? And Nobody would take us to him. They would take us to someone, who would take us to someone else, who would take us to someone else, and only finally would they then have the seniority to take us into the, uh, into the uh, district commissioner's house. And here we are on his lawn, and uh, he bought out tea and biscuits for us, and uh, then we sat down to a meal, uh, and then we had to watch television. And, uh, he was very proud of his television. He was busy eating his food with his fingers, and he was operating the remote control with his feet. <laughs> and um, his wife was the chief medical officer for Quetta, 
this now is all part of the big Taliban. Um, uh, it's, it's all the revolutionary part of Pakistan, which you cannot now go to at all. And uh, in fact, we spent uh, hours discussing you know, the way of life in the West versus the way of life in the East. Absolutely fascinating discussions. And then just as we're going to bed, about, it was about midnight, we said to him, we want to get up at about four in the morning because uh, we want to get through the border and pick up the rest of the railway. And he said, uh, I said, can you provide us with a police escort? He said, my dear boy, of course we can provide you with a police escort. I thank God for that, said. but I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> I said, well, why not? He said, we only control 4% of the landmass, which is effectively just the road. And the Taliban control everything else. And he said, we send our police cars out at night, they don't come back the next morning. And he said, but you'll all be all right, you'll be all right. They love travelers, they're travelers. So don't worry. So that's how we set off at four o'clock in the morning into Taliban country, not knowing what we were going to find. And the only danger we had in the whole trip through Taliban country was when we had stopped to fill up with petrol. And we had these three guys with Kalashnikovs over their shoulders and they had the big 35-gallon drums of fuel, which they are offloading into jerry cans and then offloading into the car. The only problem was they were smoking cigarettes the whole time. <laughs> so we gave them a wide berth. Oh, he wanted to sit in the car. That was a major challenge, getting him into the car, and an even bigger challenge, getting him out of the car. So didn't he reveal that his brother lived in Great Yes, that's right. <laughs> And he wanted to join him. <laughs> so we're now into Iran. We go the whole way up Iran, which is a pretty big country, the whole way from Turkey, and then Greece, and then we're on our way home. About another 10 minutes, if you can bear with us. So here we are, so happy to be in Iran, not realizing within an hour we'd have the first of our punches. But the people were great, full of humor, very friendly. I love, love the Iranians. Tremendous teasers. They tease all the time. And we stopped at BAM. BAM is now no longer. It was, it, it used to be a complete citadel, totally preserved from Middle East times, out of sand, and it's now totally been destroyed by them. But the reason I put that in was history is man's teacher, and that was signed here by uh, Imam Khomeini. Do you remember Khomeini was the first senior imam in Iran? <coughs> and so true, history is man's teacher. So BAM was special. After we visited BAM, we got out, and when we got into the car, I'd forgotten to put the hood quite over the steering wheel. And the steering wheel was so hot, when I gripped it, I immediately got blisters on both hands. It was about 50 degrees centigrade outside, and you had the choice of either driving with the hood up which the temperature went down to about 48. Or you had the hood down and you had a breeze and it was about 50 degrees or more. And it started playing tricks on us. You know, we literally did see what mirages were. It was really quite scary. And you remember we were going along that road and um, you kept saying to me, Jerry, change down, change down. I said, I'm already in second gear and we're not making any progress. And so Bruce said, there's something wrong with this car. So pull over, pulled over. And we weren't going on a, uh, a flat road, we were going up a steep hill. But when you were in the car, 
driving, you thought you were going on the flat road. It was a complete illusion. Yeah. Um, I've never seen anything like it. And we weren't the only ones. No. The people in the Bugatti thought their car had failed. Mm. It's because you thought you were on the level, but in fact, you were going up this quite steep. And we knew it was a steep hill afterwards because you see all the ski lifts going up into the mountains. <laughs> but the moment we were driving, it was absolutely flat. And that is absolutely just And the Zoroastrian temples and a tornado. They actually live under the ground, and that's just where the air goes in. And then the city of Isfahan, where we stopped for two days, and it's absolutely beautiful. If ever you have a chance to go to Iran, you must go to Isfahan. It is just absolutely beautiful. This is the Lady Chapel. And then the sun setting over the, the mountains at the back. Again, everybody is, is happy. And look, here again are some math students with their math stuff. It's extraordinary. Same the world over. Ah, oh, here are Bentley boys, uh, Jonathan Turner and Adam Hartley, to pee or not to pee. We all had our own uh, anti-heat equipment, and this was theirs. We would just soak a towel in water before we started and put it over our heads. It was a waste of time. In 10 minutes it was burned dry, less than that. And this is Khomeini's hometown. And then we're at a place called Tabak, right at the north of Iran. And this just shows you how resourceful you have to be on these routes. They had to uh, re-mold re the front of their car. And this fellow, we met him, goodness knows what he was doing there with his uh, sports bag. Uh, but one thing that's interesting is everywhere has its own haystack. <laughs> and we queue up to go out, and I got chatting to, the, um, to our, our guy, and I said to him, God, I'm looking forward to this beer. He said, oh, we have plenty of alcohol here. And I said, oh, we haven't seen it. We're told we couldn't bring any history. He said, we have our medicine chests. And inside our medicine chests, we have the spirit to clean our wounds. Add water, and it makes very good vodka. <laughs> <laughs> and so now we're into Turkey. And that was, you had a funny exchange with a border guard, didn't you? Well, the border guard on the Iranian side, before we went into Turkey, said, whatever you do, be ever so careful, you know, like leaving no what's it in Turkey? And we drove across the border, arrived in Turkey, and the border guard on the Turkish side said, you might have a terrible time over there, you know, like leaving no <laughs> We thought Turkey was going to be all pleasant, but in fact there was a war going on with the Kurds. And so we suddenly found ourselves amongst the tanks and the armored troop carriers. And I have to tell you, that was more frightening than anything we'd had in Iran. And so now, to, and Turkey is a huge country. We have days going through Turkey. And then we cross over to Bosporus, and that is impressive. And then we go uh, the whole way up through Greece, and then uh, across into Italy. And now we're having real fun on the Greek roads. And we, we did the old Acropolis route, didn't we? Well, this was optional, but um, it's actually part of the old Acropolis land route. But uh, we decided to do the whole thing. Probably wasn't wise. And, you know, sort of James Bond stuff there. <coughs> this was actually a very special moment, and we never realised the significance of this. This was the end of the Acropolis rally stage. We were always last in, and usually when we passed the last uh, checkpoint, it would be closed. 
and we were expected to go straight past here with a closed checkpoint. But no, all the checkpoint people had gathered here, and when we arrived, great cheers came up from them. And we, it was then that they decided to give us the spirit of the rally award, which is the cup over there, for the way that we rallied the car. And despite whatever problems we and everyone else were having, apparently we were always full of beans, always smiling to them and, and, and joking. And they couldn't understand it. They could not understand how what we had gone through in that little car, that we'd still be full of beans at the end. And uh, it was then they decided. Of course, we had no idea of this. Well, we're getting a bit closer now to civilization. And, uh, so we get overtaken by our Bentley boys and their Fiat Octopi. And they've got this mannequin in the middle of their kissing. <laughs> and then we're driving alongside, and I thought to myself, bloody hell, this is dangerous. No one's got any hand on the wheel. And then I suddenly thought, well, wait a minute, I'm taking the photograph, and I haven't got my hands on the wheel. <laughs> so that's how you start to relax after six weeks of very hard rallying. The last bit, of course, we had to have snow in the Alps. And where was all our coal gear? Right at the bottom of the car. And so we decided to brazen it out. You can see how cold Bruce is on this one. Um, thick snow, and then coming up towards the, the end, and the Bugatti should have been in front of us. They were number three, we were going to be in number order. But they absolutely insist on going behind us because they said that we had completed the rally and they'd have to have a lorry assistance part of the way, and it would be wrong for them to be in front of us. Uh, and that, I thought that was really, really nice. What started as a tremendous rivalry at the beginning ended as the best of friends. And so here as we come into Paris, uh, the family are all waiting waiting to, to meet us. And here is the winner coming in, uh, in the Willis Jeep. There's a bit of controversy on what wasn't there on the Willis Jeep. Um, well, it wasn't seen as a sort of fair winner, but I think it was really, because we drive the four-wheel drive vehicles, whereas nobody else was. And um, he had had an accident at work about six or seven weeks before the start of the rally. Yeah, he rolled away. Hmm? He tipped that over on another rally and got his hand That's right. And he broke all his fingers. And he was told <coughs> that his fingers would not mend in time for the people in Australia. And he was so determined to do it, he had the tops of all his fingers out each other. <laughs> and that shows you, the, you know, some of the ends that some people will go to. So here we are, arriving in Paris, our little Aspen, and look at all these people out Their cars were in a terrible state. And one of the motoring magazines said, it looked as if we'd just been out for a Sunday afternoon drive, and got caught up in a rally coming into Paris. And if you have a look at the car out there, nothing has changed at all. Nothing's changed in the last 20 years even though we rallied every single year on the Flying Scotsman and do some more. But it arrived in pristine condition and was absolutely great fun. And here's, uh, take a lot to get those smiles off us. So Joyce and the family and I were having lunch uh, in some little cab uh, at the end of the rally. And suddenly Betty Bannon the, one of the maintenance crew come rushing in and said, Jerry, we've got a terrible problem. I said, Betty, what's the problem? She said, we've got the winning 
with his feet in the salon for the prize giving, but we want a car on the other side of the room to match it, and we really want one of the big four and a half feet of Bentleys, but we can't get it through the door. We know your car's small and a Bentley, would you mind getting it in for us? So I said, yes, of course. And I got into the car and, you know, driving around and uh, taking the corner a bit too tight, and um, uh, the spinner of my wheel hit the tire of some Renault park with his wheels on full lock, and you just heard the of air come out as my uh, spinner had galloped a massive hole in this tire. And I said, what do I do? Do I stop? Do I go? And I was just about to go, and I realized there's a policeman watching all of this. <laughs> but what do I do? And he just looked at me, smiled, and said, go away, go away. <laughs> so we drove it in there, into the salon, and it was during the course of the evening, they were just starting the prize giving, they'd given the first prize, and George said to me on the big screen, isn't that your car on the screen? It's showing snip, snip, snippets from the, 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 the photographs from the, from the rally. And that's when we heard they'd awarded us the Spirit of the Rally Award. And you were somewhere else in the salon, no, nowhere to be seen. And I wasn't expecting, we were right at the back of the room. And that's how we got awarded the Spirit of the Rally Award. That was wonderful. We then had a party the next day for uh, Bruce's father, Tim Abbott, uh, who with Bruce had prepared the car. You know Tim? Yeah, wonderful. Yes. When Tim does an engine, you know it'll never break down. Hmm? set out for Calais. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> with the with the cup with the cup uh, tied down to the back of the back of the car. And then the next morning the car was in the motor show at Earl's Court and here Sterling Mosley presenting the cup to me. Uh, local paper, the Surrey Advertiser, did a little bit peeping to Paris through in mirages and desert and snowball fights in the Himalayas and everywhere we went through and even said we went through the Sahara Desert. <laughs> and then at the Birmingham at the Birmingham show we'd be raising money for charity. Uh, when we finished the rally we'd raised a hundred thousand pounds. When we came to present the checks uh, about a month later, that had gone to 175000 pounds Which in today's money is probably a little bit more than that, twenty years. And so that was Peking to Paris, the most wonderful adventure. I couldn't have done it if uh, Bruce and his father and uh, Randall and Tim hadn't prepared the car so well. And I couldn't have done it without the support of Joyce, who kept everything going and kept everything moving in the right direction back at home. So uh, you can't do these things alone. You can only do them as teams. Uh, but it's a tremendous experience. And Bruce and I would be happy to take any questions. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Go ahead, Shannon.
but how did that affect you physically? I mean, people do suffer from amplitude sickness. We've known that on some of our STD levels, but we're not. Um, if we, we, you go to exertion, you've got out of breath very, very quickly. That would be affected how long We didn't have any amplitude sickness problems. Uh, Philip Young did, and he got almost delirious at one stage and had to be a passenger in his car, which was wonderful for us, because we could then tease him absolutely mercilessly, which we all did, and he could answer, couldn't answer back his emails. Yes. I think there's another question just next to Tim now. 
how you obtain petrol on a daily basis in China. Um, now that was interesting because we were usually last, which meant the designated fuel stops, we'd have to wait in the up to an hour and a half sometimes for fuel. Yes, or they brought in tankers. Yeah. So Once in the Himalayas, they've always had a tanker for us. But as I said, one night in the Himalayas, we arrived so late, the tanker had been and gone, and nobody seemed to be prepared to lend us any petrol for any morning. But going through mainland China, um, we suddenly had a bright idea. They were building petrol stations all over the place, and we found this station was the most attractive petrol dependent we've ever seen. Brand new station. We said, we'll fill up there. And that was the biggest load of crap we got into that car. But the big point is, a lot of their lorries at that time, their big trucks, had big heavy petrol in small diesel. So they ran on very, very low octane fuel. And, and when you imagine the water tank loads, it's mud. And, and it was real mud. And the Americans gave us a whole lot of fuel additive. We put enough fuel additive in our tank, which held. Well, luckily, what we actually we only filled one tank, yeah. so they were able to swap the money. Yeah. We, had, we had about 10 gallons <coughs> of rubbish petrol, and we put in enough fuel additive for a thousand liters of fuel, and it was still filled. <laughs> so the secret was you only ever filled up one of the two tanks each day. So if you got rubbish petrol, and the way Bruce had done the uh, fuel system, we could turn off one pump and put on the other pump. And it, you didn't have to run fresh fuel through the carburetors. It immediately ran the fuel from the other tank. And so you, you had very little loss of power. Any more questions? Yes, one at the front. We'll make this the last one if that's okay. Um, I just wanted to know, um, did you buy the gases specifically for the rally? And if so, was there any reason to do that? Certainly didn't buy it specifically for the rally. Uh, ten years later, I bought the Model A Hall for the next time I did in Paris, and that was a really good choice of car. And the Model A Hall is the best car on earth for this sort of thing. Uh, I bought the Aston Wood about four years earlier. Um, and well, I've known the car probably for the previous ten years to that before Gary bought it. Bruce, you were every nut and bolt on that car. No, no. I mean, I only decided to do the rally when the chap in that Series 1 Land Rover asked me whether I'd be his co-driver. Now, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't his co-driver. I would have ended up down the ravine. But my God, he's doing an arm job of him. So, uh, and the Aston was the only, only car, of, you know, that, that I had. That it was certainly not the ideal choice. But I think the thing about all rallies are is in, at times, you must be driven by your heart and not just your head. And, you know, we wanted to do it in the Aston. We wanted to be the one and only Aston that ever done something like this. And by careful preparation, thanks to Bruce, very careful driving, mainly by Bruce and I tried, um, we managed to keep that car going the whole time. But we wanted to. And I think it's much better if you want to do it in a particular car, you do it in that car, but you recognize that you've got to make compensations for the unsuitability. So and the Aston was on They are very, very tough cars, I think, I should say. Um, they're pretty heavy for one and a half meters. Um, you know, the, the background of those cars is long distance racing.